Today is the Sunday after Thanksgiving, and we're going to do something a little bit different. Let me tell you how I um, got here. Uh, on Wednesday afternoons at 1 o'clock, I teach at Renewal Ranch, and for about the last five years or so, I've been teaching a course out there on spiritual warfare. Uh, about a month ago, I was getting ready to go out to the ranch, and my voice uh, was messed up. I had uh, lost most of my voice, and where I teach is a big room. About 25 guys are there. They're kind of spread out, and it's a, it's a room where I just thought, I can't project. There's not a sound system. I'm not going to be able to teach the way I normally do. Um, I love going out there, by the way. My wife will tell you teaching at the ranch is one of the highlights of my week. Um, So what I did is I decided I've got to do something different. We were talking about the attributes of God. And so I decided what I would do is is take something I knew was present on the Bible Project and put together um, a number of videos on the character of God that are all in a series they have. And and I'd show that while I was out there, um, mostly just to take care of my voice. Um. As I was showing it, I could tell something was different happening in the room. Um, there was, a, there was a, a feeling that was created, and, and I was starting to feel, gosh, this is good, putting this all together. And I thought, I've done a good job here, um, which is not necessarily the right feeling you should be having. Um, but but I, I came away from that thinking, this was really valuable, not because of the knowledge. There's a, a lot of things to learn here. But because of the feeling you come away with, um, the next morning on Thursday mornings here at the church at 6 o'clock, um, I gather with a group of men to do a study of systematic theology. We're doing uh, an examination of the uh, background of the historical Jesus and evidence for historical Jesus. Um, that's the kind of level it is. It's serious 6 o'clock in the morning men. So Renewal Ranch on Wednesday and men's serious Bible study on Thursday, and I decided to show the same video series and, and kind of let them see this presentation of the character of God. It was really good. <laughs> um, and it, it brought me away thinking, I need to get this shown, you know, as many places as I can. And as I think about Thanksgiving and the many things we can be thankful for, there's a lot of stuff that we can be thankful for. Our houses, our cars, um, the big meals we just ate, our families. Um, But a lot of the stuff is kind of represented by the piles on the sides of the auditorium here of the stuff that gets in the way. It's the stuff that we've been learning in the book of Judges that is um, distracting, and it's often the idolatry of our lives that we give ourselves to things that produce the stuff. Um, and as I thought about that with Thanksgiving, I thought maybe, maybe we could spend some time in a very different way being thankful for the character of God. And that's what this um, presentation does uh, with the Bible Project. Let me set it up a little bit. There's going to be a lot of language in this uh, uh, thing because of the Hebrew language. Let me say something about languages of the Bible. Uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament was written in Greek. There's some small portions in Daniel, the middle of Daniel, a little bit of Ezra that are written in Aramaic. But for the most part, Old Testament is Hebrew, New Testament is Greek. Um, and as you think about that, the, the languages are a little bit different. 
um, and they add clarity. Let me ask, tell you what, what I mean by that, if I possibly can. Um, if this were an older generation, I would illustrate it this way. Reading your Bible in English is like watching black and white TV. Yesterday, I was watching TV with my mom, and we started watching The Real McCoys, and it was in black and white, and there's just, they were standing outside, and there was this bush, and they were trimming a bush, but it was a gray bush. It wasn't in color. Now, I, we could track everything that was going on. You knew the plot. You knew everything happening, but if it would have been in color, it would have been just much more alive, okay? For those of you who are looking at me and going, black and white, TV, what is that? Maybe I could do it this way. Um, it's the difference between watching television in 720p and 4K. The resolution is just brighter when you see it. It doesn't mean your English Bibles are bad. It's, they're really good. You can read them. You understand everything going on, but there's some crispness that comes from the original languages. So there's a value to understanding the Hebrew and the Greek. Um, it's not required, but there's some value. It adds some crispness and some clarity. The difference between the two languages, I would describe this way. Hebrew is very earthy, and because we're going to be working in an Old Testament passage, you're going to see what I mean by that. There's an earthiness to Hebrew. It's connected to very physical things. I'm not going to explain it. You'll see. Greek is much more logical. There's just a clear logic to how the Greek language expresses thoughts. And, and so it's, a, it's kind of a different mindset. But keep that in mind as we think about the character of God, that God revealed himself to Moses. Um, the passage we're going to be dealing with, and you're going to hear it a number of times, in fact, as it's repeated again and again, I would say, hey, take a chance to memorize it, because you're going to hear it again and again. Um, the passage is from Exodus chapter 34. It says this, Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones, okay? He had already cut the Ten Commandments, brought them down from the mountain. The people were worshiping idolatry, <laughs> they had all the stuff they had, their gold and silver, they made it into an idol and worshiped it. Moses broke the tablets, has gone back up because God said, I'm going to make some more tablets. So Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. He started early in the morning and he went up to Mount Sinai and Yahweh, as Yahweh had commanded him. And he took his, in his hand the two stone tablets. And Yahweh descended in the cloud and he stood with him there. And Yahweh proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Um, it says he, but it's Yahweh proclaims the name of Yahweh. Like, um, like Ron has already made clear, the name is the character. And what God does is God called out his character. Um, this phrase, to call out, proclaim the name of Yahweh, um, has sometimes been translated, call on the name of the, the Lord. It doesn't make sense in the context. You don't call on the name of the Lord, which sounds like prayer. This is more calling out the name of the Lord. It's proclamation. It's preaching. It's praising him. If, if we were doing it, it would be proclaiming. Um, if we were doing calling out his character, his name, then his name is his character. If we were doing it, it would be proclamation or, or praising him. When God is doing it's a proclamation of this is who I am. And so, so God is, is coming, and it's almost as if, as if Moses is saying, these people have just rebelled against you, um, and you're going to give them another chance? What are you like? And, and God says, let me tell you what I'm like. And he proclaims his name. He proclaims his character. 
And Yahweh passed over before him, and he proclaimed. He called out. He declared, Yahweh, Yahweh, God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding with loyal love and faithfulness, keeping loyal love to the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and he does not, um, and he does not leave utterly unpunished, punishing the guilt of the fathers on sons and on sons on the third and fourth generation. God, God is just, um, and there will be consequences for sinful people as the consequences are seen to the third and fourth generation. But look at how great his graciousness is. His graciousness goes to thousands of generations. Um, but, but what happens in this passage is God says, this is my character. This is my name. I'm telling you who I am. They're rebelling. I'm giving them a second chance. But the law reveals my holiness. So Moses, if you're wondering who I am, here's, here's my, my name. Here's my character. I'm compassionate and gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in loyal love and, and faithfulness. And that's what I want us to come away today feeling thankful for. Thankful for the character of God. Our stuff so often draws us away. But we can be thankful for the character of God. So I want to, piece by piece go through an in-depth look from the Bible Project. You can get this online. I've got links on the sermon if you want to watch these at home. Uh, But we're just going to watch piece by piece. I'm going to make one comment in between the character of God. And I hope you come away, yes, with some information, but I hope you come away feeling thankful for who God is. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. The very first word used in this description of God is compassionate, or in Hebrew, rachum. This word also appears as a noun, rachamim, or compassion. And what's fascinating is that both of these words are related to the Hebrew word for womb, rechem. So compassion in the Hebrew Bible is centered in a person's core, and the word invites us to imagine a mother's tender feelings for her vulnerable infant. So rachum is a word that conveys intense emotion. Sometimes it's even translated as deeply moved, like in the story of King Solomon who meets two women who've just given birth. One of their babies sadly dies, but then both women claim that the baby still living is theirs. As a test, Solomon says to cut the baby in two and give each mother a half. And the baby's real mother is deeply moved. She would rather the other woman take her baby than see her child die. And it's her compassion that reveals that she's the true mother. But rahum isn't just an emotional word. It also involves action. And surprisingly, the word is used most often to describe God's actions motivated by his emotions. Like when the Israelites are suffering and oppressed in Egypt, God hears their cries and is compelled by his compassion, his rachamim, to rescue them. Then, as the Israelites travel through the dangerous wilderness, they're hungry and thirsty. And God is rachum, caring for them as his own child. He provides everything they need, food, water, and clothing as he personally guides them. 
So it's no surprise that when Yahweh reveals his character to the Israelites in the wilderness, he begins by saying he's compassionate. But despite Yahweh's continual rachamim, the Israelites turn away from him time and again. They reject Yahweh's compassion and instead give their allegiance to other gods. And rather than showing compassion to each other, they do violence. And their rebellion results in exile and they're scattered among the nations. And it's in this dark moment in Israel's story that we come to the book of Isaiah where Yahweh compares himself to a mother full of rachamim toward her baby. He says, can a mother forget her nursing child or have no compassion or rachamim on the child of her womb? Even if she forgets, I will not forget you. God is full of motherly compassion and he will rescue his people. And as you read further in Isaiah, you realize that God is going to do this by entering into the suffering of humanity. And this points forward to a time when Jesus comes on the scene. He is Yahweh's deep compassion become human. In Greek, the word compassion is oiktirmos. And as Jesus embraces the sick and cares for the outcast, he is deeply moved by human suffering. Jesus compares himself to a mother hen using her wings to shield her chicks from danger as he gathers people into his embrace. And in the ultimate expression of oiktirmas, Jesus is moved by compassion to enter into humanity's suffering, into death itself, to rescue and bring us near to God. And it's this same life of compassion that Jesus calls his followers to imitate allowing ourselves to be moved by the pain of others, to embrace the hurting, and to participate in relieving suffering in the world. In this way, we too can embody the compassion of Yahweh, or in Jesus' words, be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. Now you can see how fitting it is that compassionate is the first word God uses to describe himself. So when we're in pain or see others suffering, we can be certain that God is deeply moved to respond and that he's there to meet us with his deep compassion. Thankful that God is compassionate. He's, he's womish. Um, he cares. He's moved and he... He's moved in such a way that he, he rescues us and he meets our needs and he takes care of us and, and he sees the difficulty that we're struggling with. God is, he's compassionate, but he's also gracious. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We're going to look at the second key word in this statement, gracious. The Hebrew word is chanun, which is related to the Hebrew noun chen. This word chen is often translated as grace or favor, and if you study how this word is used throughout the Bible, you find a fascinating story. One meaning of chen is delightful or favorable. In the Psalms, a skilled poet is said to have lips of chen. That is, he can craft beautiful words that bring delight. Or a dazzling piece of jewelry is an ornament of chen. 
It attracts attention and favor. This is why chen is often the word used to describe a gift given with delight or favor. In these cases, chen could be translated as grace. Like in the story of Esther, who approaches the king of Persia to ask that she and her people be spared from death. She calls this a request for chen. And because the king delights in Esther, he favors her and grants her wish. So, giving a gift of favor is chen because it's motivated by delight. And the most extreme kind of chen is showing favor to someone who should get what they deserve, not a generous gift. Like Jacob, who cheated his brother Esau, ran away, and then after 20 years wants to come back and make things right. So he comes to Esau asking, may I find chen in your eyes? Jacob isn't asking for what is fair, but for favor. And surprisingly, that's what Esau gives him. He chooses to delight in his brother Jacob and show him grace that he doesn't deserve. Now, chen requires a generous spirit, which people sometimes have. But in the Bible, the one who shows more chen than anyone else is God. Like when God rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and they quickly betray him by giving their allegiance to a golden idol as their God. But then, Moses steps in and asks God to consider giving a gift that they don't deserve. And God says, yes, by showing the ultimate act of chen, forgiveness and a promise to be with these people. This character trait of God is so reliable that over 40 times in the book of Psalms, people cry out for God's chen when they're sick or in danger or when the Israelites are in exile. And the biblical prophets like Isaiah looked back to God's chen in the past and boldly declared that God will one day show chen to his people by delivering them and all creation from death and ruin. Now, when we turn to the authors of the New Testament, they describe God's chen with the Greek word charis, which means gracious gift. Like when we're introduced to Jesus in the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus is God's glorious charis become human, sent into a world of people trapped in darkness and death. Because according to the Apostle Paul, we're like the living dead. God has handed humanity over to the destructive consequences of our selfish decisions. But, Paul says, God is rich in mercy, and by his charis, he's rescued us. He's talking about how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are offered to us as a generous gift of life that is more powerful than death. And as with any gift, all one has to do is receive it. So, now you can see why the biblical authors talk so much about this description of God's character throughout the Bible. When people are willing to own their failures and ask God for chen, he has a consistent and generous response. God gives the gift of himself, his life and his love. And this is what it means that God is gracious. So God is womish. He, he cares for us, and that moves him to rescue us. And out of that movement, he graciously and generously um, gives us things we don't deserve, our own salvation, another day of life. God graciously bestows on us gifts that we don't earn, but that he generously gives to us. And he's slow to anger. This one is fun. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way. 
compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We're going to look at this third phrase, that God is slow to anger. Now, that might surprise some people. Isn't the God of the Bible mostly angry, striking people down for their sins? Well, it turns out that God's anger in the Bible is way more nuanced than that and way more interesting. In Hebrew, the phrase slow to anger is pronounced erek apayim, or literally long of nose. But what does God's patience have to do with a long nose? Well, first, we need to look at the common biblical Hebrew way to say that someone is angry. Their nose burned hot. Like in the story of Joseph, when Potiphar thinks that Joseph tried to sleep with his wife, his nose burned hot. It's usually translated, his anger burned. It's describing how your body, especially your face, gets hot when you're filled with anger. And so in Hebrew, the main words for anger are either nose or heat or hot nose. This is why a patient person is called long of nose. It takes a long time for their nose to get hot. Like in the biblical proverb, a person's wisdom is their long nose. That is, their slow anger. Now, in the Bible, God gets angry numerous times, but God doesn't have a nose or get hot. These are metaphors using our experience of hot anger to describe how God feels when he witnesses human evil. Just like you would get angry if you saw a child being bullied on the playground, so God gets angry when humans oppress each other and ruin his world. In the Bible, God's anger is an expression of his justice and his love for the world. But he's slow to anger, which means he gives people lots of time to change. Like in the story of the Exodus, when Pharaoh enslaves the Israelites and has their baby boys thrown into the waters, God sends Moses to confront Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's given 10 chances to let Israel go free. But after the 10th refusal, Pharaoh rides out with his chariots to destroy the Israelites. And so God destroys him in the waters. Pharaoh's own evil is turned back upon him. And we read that this is an act of God's hot anger. Now, that's really intense, but think about it. God wouldn't be good if he didn't get angry at Pharaoh's evil and eventually do something about it. And notice that God's anger is expressed by handing Pharaoh over to the consequences of his own decisions. And this is actually how God's anger is shown throughout the scriptures, like in the story of the Israelites. Over and over again, for hundreds of years, they betray the God who rescued them from slavery. And though he gives them many chances to turn around, they keep giving their allegiance to the gods of other nations. And each time we read that the hot anger of God burned against the Israelites. But notice what always follows. God gave them over into the hands of their enemies. Israel wanted to serve the gods of other nations. And so God, in his just anger, gives them what they want as those nations circle back and defeat Israel. This is similar to what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Romans. He says, God's anger is being revealed against human evil. And then three times he says what that looks like. God hands people over to their destructive desires and decisions, even if it leads to death. But Paul also says, God is patient, giving people time to come to their senses and change. Because remember, God's anger is a response to human evil. And it's based on a deeper character trait, his compassion and his loyal love. God is not content to let people sit in their own self-destruction. In the Bible, God's on a mission to rescue. This is why Jesus said that he was going to Jerusalem to die as a demonstration of God's love for his enemies. 
He would stand in the place of his people who were choosing self-destruction and take the consequences of their decisions upon himself. In Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we see God's anger at evil and his love for people working together to provide forgiveness and life for a humanity lost in self-ruin. So God's anger in the Bible is really important, but it's not the end of the story. When God is angry and brings justice, it's because he's good. And he's extremely patient, working out his plan to restore people to his love. And that's what it means to say that God is slow to anger. A lot of potential applications for that. Um, I think nicknames, kind of hot nose. And hey, you lengthen your nose. Stop shortening your nose. Some parenting going on there. Uh, But God is just. He will judge. But he's got a long nose. It takes him a long time. He's patient. He gives us chance after chance after chance. And, and we should be thankful that God is so compassionate and desiring to care and notice and deliver. And he is gracious. And when we don't earn it, he still delivers. And when justice must come, he's patient and he's long. And it takes a long time for his to get lit. Um, And God is full of loyal love. I've talked about this one over the years a lot. Um, Great explanation here for God's loyal love. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently describe God's character in this way compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We're going to look at this fourth phrase, loyal love. It translates the Hebrew word chesed, which is hard to translate into any language because it combines the ideas of love, generosity, and enduring commitment all into one. Chesed describes an act of promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care. Like in the story of Ruth, Ruth is a foreigner married to an Israelite man, but tragically, her husband dies along with his brother and his father. All Ruth has left is her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, who has nothing to give her. Naomi tells Ruth she should go back to her people, but instead, Ruth promises to stay by Naomi's side and take care of her. And as other people watch Ruth keep this promise over time, they call it an act of chesed. Notice that Ruth's chesed is not conditional or based on Naomi's worth. Rather, it's an expression of Ruth's character. She just is a generous and loving person who keeps her word. That's chesed. Now, Ruth's loyal love is truly inspiring, but the one who shows the most enduring chesed in the Bible is God. Like in the story about Jacob, who is a treacherous liar even to his own family. But despite that, God chooses him and repeats the promise he made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, that he would have a huge family through whom God would restore his blessing to the nations. And so 20 years later, when Jacob realizes how undeserving he is, he says to God, I'm not worthy of all the chesed you've shown me. And he's right. But God's chesed was never about Jacob's worth in the first place. It's a display of God's generous loyalty to his promise. God's chesed continues into the story of Jacob's descendants, the Israelites. When they're enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt, we're told that God remembered his promise to Abraham and Jacob, so God defeats Egypt. 
and raises up Moses to liberate the people and lead them into the promised land. And in the story, this is called an act of chesed because it was about God keeping his word. Now, on their way to the promised land, the Israelites are scared of the nations around them and they doubt that God can protect them. So the people threaten to kill Moses and appoint a new leader to take them back to Egypt. God is understandably hurt and angry, but Moses steps in and says, forgive the sin of these people because of your great chesed. Notice that Moses asks God to forgive, not because the people deserve it, but because it's consistent with God's own character. And God agrees, and he recommits himself to a people that don't want to be committed to him. In the Bible, God is loyal and loving for no other reason than it's just who God is. Of course he wants his people to respond with chesed in return, but even when they don't, God's chesed remains. The prophet Hosea compared Israel's chesed to a morning mist that's here one moment and gone the next. But God's chesed is enduring. Like in the celebration of Psalm 136 that opens by saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and then 26 times repeats, His chesed is forever. And so, after centuries of Israel betraying their commitment to God, and after humanity's long history of violence and death, God still kept his promise in a dramatic and drastic way by becoming human and binding himself to us in the person of Jesus. And the people who followed Jesus of Nazareth said that in him they encountered the God of Israel who is full of loyal love and faithfulness. Jesus is the ultimate loyal and loving human. And in his life, death, and resurrection, God opened up a new future for all of us and for all of creation. And God did this because it's just who God is. Generous, loving, and eternally loyal to his promises. And when we experience the purity and power of God's loyal love shown through Jesus, it compels us to reimagine why and how we can show chesed back to God and to the people around us. This is what it means to say that God is overflowing with loyal love. God is womish. He cares for us and notices and delivers, and he is graciously, generously giving things we don't earn, and he's slow to deliver out the consequences of sin, and he never gives up on us, um, and, and he's reliable. Um, in this last video, um, I want you to notice the the solid thing they're portraying. The, the, the people will often jump, and they're jumping on something solid. It's reliable. God is so wonderful that we can be thankful. Um, apart from stuff, apart from what's going on all around us, thankful for the character of God. And you can rely on that. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. 
We're going to look at this last characteristic of God. It's the Hebrew word emet, which can be translated as faithfulness or even truth. It's related to another word you've probably heard before, amen, which is an untranslated Hebrew expression meaning that's truth. So, emet can mean truth, and it can refer to correct ideas or concepts. This is because emet has to do with stability and reliability, like when Moses holds up his hands for hours to defeat Israel's enemies, the Amalekites. His friends put a rock under him and support his hands so that his hands will remain emet, or steady. When emet is used of people, it describes reliable and stable character, or trustworthiness. Like when Moses appoints leaders in Israel, they're to be people of emet, people who are trustworthy, who won't take bribes or distort justice. So to say that God is full of emet doesn't just mean that God tells the truth or stands for truth. It means that God is faithful and trustworthy. This is why Moses calls God a rock, saying that he's faithful, just, and upright. He's saying that he can trust God to be consistent to his character. And the Hebrew word for trust is actually the verb form of the word emet. It's he'emin. It can be translated as to believe or to have faith, but most basically it means to consider someone trustworthy or to trust. The first person we meet in the Bible who considers God to be trustworthy is Abraham. God makes a promise that Abraham and his wife Sarah will have a huge family and that through them, all nations will experience God's blessing. But Abraham and Sarah are really, really old, and they've never been able to have any children. And yet, in the face of these challenges, Abraham means God. He considers God trustworthy to open a way forward. And God does show Emet to Abraham and Sarah. In just four generations, their descendants form a whole nation called Israel. And God invites Israel into a trusting and faithful relationship. And when God leads them out of slavery in Egypt, Israel means in God. They trust and rely on him. But when they come to the land God promised to Abraham, and they find out it's filled with giant cities protected by giants, their trust in God's Emet fails. But eventually, we meet an Israelite who does trust God in the face of giants. It's David. He yells at the giant, You come with a sword and a spear, but I come with the name of the God of Israel. David consistently relies on God. In fact, it said that David walked in Emet before God. So David considers God to be faithful and responds with faithfulness. This is why God promises to raise up a faithful descendant of David, whose kingdom will endure forever, or in Hebrew, have emet. This faithful king will become the source of trust and stability for others forever. But when the kingdom later collapses, the Israelites find themselves without a home and without a king. And they cry out, Oh God, where is your loyal love that you swore to David in your emet? They're accusing God of abandoning his promises to Abraham and to David. Is God trustworthy? Is he faithful after all? The first line of the New Testament is an answer to that question. This is the lineage of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, through Jesus, God fulfills his promises. Or as Paul says, Jesus came on behalf of God's faithfulness. He is the faithful king whose kingdom will endure forever and who invites all nations to trust God. Now, trusting anyone is risky. It's hard to know if anyone is really full of emet. 
but the biblical story portrays a God who's been faithful all along and whose promises were fulfilled in the story of Jesus. And so as we look out at the obstacles facing us and our world, we're invited to take that same risk and join Abraham, David, and the people of God in trusting that God is overflowing with faithfulness. There's plenty for us to understand, but I'm less interested that you understand all of that and that you feel something. (laughs) You feel thankful, not for your stuff and not for all the leftovers or all of the shopping you're going to have to do and hopefully everyone will be happy, but thankful for the character of God. Thankful that God is... um, compassionately caring for us and noticing and desiring to rescue us. That that God is gracious and he doesn't require us to earn. He generously gives gifts to us and he's slow to anger, um, giving us chance after chance and being patient with us before the consequences inevitably swallow us up. And God is loyal in his love. He never gives up. And you can rely on him. That's worth being thankful for. So what can you do with this passage? Well, if you haven't already, I encourage you to memorize Exodus 34, 5 to 7. You've heard it a bunch. It got repeated again and again and again. But memorizing that to lock you in to the character of God. When God wanted to describe what he was like, this is what he said. He said, I'm Yahweh. I am Yahweh. And, and I am I'm compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and full of loyal love and faithfulness. And I encourage you to be thankful for what God's done for you out of his character. But most of all, be thankful for just who God is, real simply. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to pray and sing one more song, hopefully out of thankful and grateful, praising hearts for who God is. Father, we thank you that you proclaim to us your word. I thank you for the creativity of places like the Bible Project and the clarity of the message that um, they presented. And I pray that our response, not just in this song and um, as we praise you, but our response in, in how we go through this Thanksgiving and holiday and Christmas season would reflect that we are trusting in you. And that our thankfulness is not for our stuff, which will fade and rot. But our thankfulness is for your character, so clearly expressed in your love for us through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.